uh, as our text tonight from the book of Jeremiah, Isaiah Jeremiah, and the chapter is 13, and just one verse, uh, verse 23. So Jeremiah 13, verse 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard its spots? And just really that part. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Are we forever predisposed to certain forms of behavior? In this uh, age we live in, uh, we're often told such is the case. Big debate about whether our behavior is nature or nurture. Are we to be forever trapped by our besetting sins? Must we always accept it as, that's just the way I am. That's the way I was born. It's the way I grew up. Can't expect me to change now. Can a leopard change its spots? Or an Ethiopian, his skin. God had a controversy with Judah in Jeremiah 13, its habits had become second nature. Its besetting sins had become a lifestyle. Judah had become stiff-necked, stubborn, unwilling to change. And the wrong, the bad, the sin had become ingrained. Now, although the leopard and the Ethiopian by nature could not change. Judah would not change, and therein lies a big difference. And because Judah would not change, therefore they would have to go into captivity and be chastened by the Lord. So is there nothing that can be done? Is real change impossible? Can old dogs never learn new tricks? Is it Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Has the die been already cast? Thank God, no. Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Aren't you glad for that verse? So change is possible. God desires it. Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver can become Israel, a prince with God. From Genesis chapter 25 to Genesis 32, you get the history of Jacob. Born just a moment after his twin brother Esau was born. Esau came out first and Jacob came out second, holding his heel, grabbing his heel. The heel grabber, the supplanter became the deceiver. Chapter 27. Chapter 25 also. Uh, we find that Esau, his brother, had no love for his birthright. You know, the birthright was something that wasn't just only important in a sense of property and finances and status. It was very important spiritually in the family. The one who would be the eldest eventually would be expected to be the one who would be strong spiritually. 
and carry on that spiritual uh, chain within that family. But of course Esau had no love for his birthright. He was a profane man, the Bible says. And yet Jacob, who was a, a man who stayed at home type of a person, yet he saw the benefits and the blessings that there would be in the birthright if only he could get it. And given his opportune moment, he took it, he bought it off Esau for a dish of porridge. And then, of course, uh, when you go into Genesis 27, you'll see that now he wants the blessing of the uh, birthright. And he deceives his own father, lies to him, bald-faced lie to his own dad in order to get that birthright. And even though he was a spiritual man in the sense that he understood spiritual things and realized the spiritual consequences and ramifications of having the birthright, yet he was a carnal man because he lied and he deceived and he supplanted as well as his name implies. And then of course in chapter 28 we see his escape from Esau. He wanted to kill him and on the way of escaping uh, he had that wonderful dream when he put his head on that stone pillow that night and he saw that great ladder from earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending on that ladder. And God was working in his life. And then, of course, in chapter 29, Uncle Laban deceives him. The deceiver gets deceived. Deceives him over the wedding with Rachel and Leah. And then in chapter 32, after 20 years... And he decides to come back and under fear of being killed by Esau, he had that wonderful experience of wrestling with the angel at Jebok, where God changed his name to Israel. What is your name? Jacob. You shall be called Israel, a prince with God because you have prevailed with God and with men. And what a wonderful transformation. Can a leopard change its spots? An Ethiopian its skin? The time you come into Exodus, sorry, yeah, the time you come into Exodus chapter 3, you'll see that God calls himself, when he introduces himself to Moses, he calls himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And so, God has a high estimation of this man even though he didn't start out well. Abraham becomes Abraham, a father of nations, of a multitude. Sarah becomes Sarah, a princess. Simon becomes Peter. Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle, the one who dedicated his life to stamping out Christianity, who was angry and bitter, murderous spirit, and yet that same man becomes the great Apostle Paul that we said this morning wrote 13 or 14 of the books of the New Testament. John, the, whom Jesus nicknamed Boanerges, son of thunder. <laughs> what a temper he had. He was so angry he wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. And yet he became the Apostle of love. The one who had such a gentle Spirit in the end. Isn't it wonderful what God can do? See, the clear teaching of the Bible is that God can take a man or a woman and he can change them 
and he can mold them and he can make them and refine them and purge them and make them into something that he wants them to be. Simon Peter is a great example in a sense of a leopard that changed its spots. He was impetuous, impulsive, fiery, quick on the draw, <laughs> pushy, ambitious, competitive, all of those things and more. Yet, he was a natural leader. There have to be massive changes in his life to be a leader in the kingdom of God, but he was a natural leader of men. And he was a sacrificial giver, willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. His fishing business, he wasn't an angler, he was a fisherman, professional fisherman with a business. And would give it up in a heartbeat just to follow Jesus. He's a man of great insight. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was a man who was either 100% right, 100% right or 100% wrong. There's no middle ground with this man. But that was the nature of him. He was a contradiction. He slept when he should have been awake. He spoke up when he should have shut up. And he shut up when he should have spoken up. He was fearless. And yet he was a coward. Swore on dying loyalty to Christ. And within hours, he was an unprincipled liar who denied ever even knowing him. Such was this contradiction of a man. The marvel is, of course, that Jesus can take such a man, emotional, irrational, unstable, vacillating, and yet that same man make into a pillar of the early church, one of the great leaders of the early church. So how does this happen? How can a leopard change its spots or an Ethiopian its skin? How can someone can so drastically change that God can make them into his man or his woman for his glory? You know, that's the testimony that many people has. I've heard many testimonies over the years. And I've heard testimonies of people who were uh, great sinners in that sense, that they did everything that this world uh, could offer. And yet at the end of it, they became wonderful Christians, great sanctified men and women. It's wonderful. First thing that Jesus did, of course, was to give him another name. In John chapter 1, right at the very beginning, whenever they met, when John the Baptist pointed to Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. And that was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, the first time 
they spoke. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You should be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. In the Greek, it's Petros, a stone. The very first time they met, the very first words that Jesus spoke to him said, I'm going to change your name. You're going to become a stone. Now, it takes a while for a Simon to become a Peter. It takes a while. But Jesus really put down the marker. He said, you're going to become a stone. You're going to become a strong man in my kingdom. But it takes a while. In Matthew chapter 16... Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, he's reminding him again, this is some time later. I also say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, certain denominations believe, of course, that Jesus said he was going to build his rock upon Peter, but that wasn't the case. Uh, going to build this upon the revelation of who Christ was. Uh, Petros is a stone. Christ is a great rock, <laughs> a mighty rock. You're Peter and on this rock, this revelation that you have about me, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter, unbelievably, incredibly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine rebuking the very Son of God. Be it far from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. That's the very reason Jesus came. But he doesn't get it. Sure he doesn't. doesn't see that, of course. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. One moment he was a spokesman for God, the next moment he was a spokesman for the devil. This is the great contradiction of this man. But Jesus is working on him. Told him the first time they met, you're going to be a stone. You're going to become strong. And in fact, you'll be a pillar. And now he's reminding him again. And having reminded him, <laughs> he has to rebuke him. It takes a while for God to turn a Simon into a Peter. 
in John chapter 13. Let's look at his great pride here. There's tremendous potential in this man, but he's full of pride. Now therefore the feast of the Passover. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that it was our has come and he should depart from his, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil have already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And in verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. <laughs> I mean, when you read that statement, if you try to put yourself in that position, here is the Son of God bending down with a towel and a basin about to wash their feet. And Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet. Now, it's not as if he was saying, hey, you wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. Let me wash your feet. He wasn't thinking about washing anybody's feet. He didn't think any of them should be washing anybody's feet because they were masters. Jesus was the Messiah. They were all his right-hand men. They don't wash people's feet. They're not servants. They're masters. And this was the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach them. He was the master, and yet he came to serve. And Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet. It shows you his pride, the hubris, the pride of the man at that moment. You can see there had to be a lot of work done on this man, hadn't there? Just the way there had to be work done on us too. So Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon and Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew he would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for I, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Can a leopard change its spots? Or an Ethiopian, his skin? Is there hope that we can change? Well, this is why I want you to be encouraged with Peter's story. If ever anybody needed changed, it was this man. If ever anybody needed God working in his life, it was this man. 
But God did work on his life. Look at Luke 9. The patience the master had with this man. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now it came to pass, about eight days after these things, that he took Peter, John, and James. They were his inner circle of the twelve. And he went up to the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. In his stupidity, in his ignorance, not knowing what he said. He was so excited. Here he is, wakes up out of the kind of a stupor they were in, heavy with sleep, sees this wonderful scene unfolded before him, and here is his two childhood heroes. Doesn't get any better than this. Elijah and Moses, standing with Jesus, talking to him. I mean, it must have been an unbelievable sight for those men to see that. And they're absolutely awestruck by what they see. Hmm. Moses and Elijah, representatives of the law and of the prophets. He says, it's wonderful to be here, Lord. Why don't we just stay here? We'll make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see, unconsciously, subconsciously, he was putting all three on the same level. It's making no difference here. But God makes a difference. Notice what happens next. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And when the voice ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days of the things that they had seen. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Exalt him. You see, the Bible says about the law in Galatians, that the law was our tutor, it was our schoolmaster to point us to Christ. We never could keep the law. Never could fulfill the law. And that's why the Bible talks about the curse of the, the law. The curse of the law is that you can't fulfill it that we're not good enough and able enough to fulfill the law, all the law's demands. And it's a cursed demand because he can't fulfill that great, exact, righteous, holy law. It's too much, it's too high, it's too great. Only one person did that, and that was the Son of God when he was on the earth. Only one person kept it completely and wholly. 
but it points us to Christ. It lets us see where we have failed. It lets us see our weakness and then points us to the one who can save us, the one who fulfilled the law's demands. And of course, the prophets point to Christ, don't they? All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets were pointing to Christ who was to come. Hundreds of references to Christ who was to come. Here's Christ in the middle. And Peter in his stupidity and his ignorance, he puts all three on the same level. And God says, uh-uh, no, no. This is my beloved son. Hear him. The law has spoken. The prophets have spoken. But this is my son speaking now. You better hear him. You see how the Lord has been working on Peter? And then we see his self-confidence in Mark chapter 14. Verse 27, Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, and he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Nothing could be clearer or plainer than that. And after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not me. <laughs> Jesus says, all of you are going to stumble. And Peter thought, uh-uh, not me. The rest of this bunch may, but not me. What arrogance. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, likewise. Unbelievable, isn't it? Or is it? That's the human nature, isn't it? Full of self-confidence. Never could imagine himself in a million years denying his Lord feeling so miserable. Just could not, was never on his radar at all. He could see others doing it. He could look around the rest of the disciples and he could point every one of them out and say, yeah, you got this weakness, you got that weakness. Yeah, you could feel all right. Oh, you could deny the Lord, but he just couldn't see himself. And aren't we a wee bit like that too sometimes? We can see it all in others, but we can't see it in ourselves. But thank God he keeps working on us, doesn't he? He doesn't give up on us. And of course, after that terrible denial, that threefold denial. And in John chapter 21, which you don't need to turn to, you remember how after they felt that it was all over, they went fishing, and as they came back with nothing, and Jesus was waiting on the seashore, had made a little barbecue for them, and then he called Peter aside, you remember how three times he asked him, do you love me? But if you read in, in John 21, in all three occasions when he said, do you love me? He called him Simon Barjona. 
He called him Simon Bar-John. He didn't call him Peter on those occasions. He took him back to what he was like with the old nature, with the old feeling, prideful, arrogant, self-confident nature that failed him terribly. And he reminded him of that. Simon Bar-Jonah, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. And you know the story. You know that how I'm very fond of you. Jesus said, do you love me unconditionally, passionately, zealously? Do you truly, really love me? Well, you know that I'm very fond of you. <laughs> three times he asked him that question. Three times Peter answered him. Threefold denial. Threefold question. Threefold commission. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. The Lord's still working on him. There's still some change to happen. We're almost finished. He did pretty good after that. Mighty preacher of the gospel. Thousands of people coming to Christ through his preached word. Signs and wonders and miracles. There he was, based in Jerusalem, church headquarters. He was the main man, no question about it. He was the big cheese. Doing powerfully well. Now remember that he is called to take the gospel to the Jews and Paul would be called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And of course Peter was happy to take the gospel to the Jews. He was a Jew, brought up a Jew, brought up in all that Jewish culture, felt comfortable, happy to take the gospel to the Jews. But God was about to awaken him out of that cozy nest in Jerusalem. And so he's at the house of Simon the Tanner in Acts chapter 10. He's up there sleeping, waiting for some meal that has been made. And while he's just kind of drifting, suddenly he gets a vision of this sheet coming down from heaven, tied at the corners with all kinds of manners of creepy crawlies and beasts on it. Arise, Peter! Slay and eat! Not so, Lord. Not me. That's not kosher. Any self-respecting Jew would not eat what's on that tablecloth that I'm seeing coming down from heaven. Not me, Lord. I would not touch that with a 40-foot barge pole. Now, he didn't say that, but I'm just saying that's what he meant. That's really what he meant. What I have cleansed, don't you call common or unclean? And that vision came down three times. And while he was wondering what all that meant, suddenly there was a knock at the door and three men arrived from the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman, a high-ranking Roman official who had been very, very good to the Jews, who had prayed much and gave alms to the Jews. And God heard that man's prayers. And God spoke to him clearly and said, I want you to send somebody to Simon the Tanner's house and I want you to get Peter to come and he'll tell you what you need to do. And so they explained the situation. And when he saw those three men and heard the story, he realized what the vision was about. These were Gentiles. 
And so he went back to Cornelius' house. Now think of this for a moment, you see. Try, try to imagine here his position. You see, whenever these Jews like Peter and the rest, the, the apostles, whenever they got saved, all they thought was that Christ and the gospel was for the Jew only. Not just for the Jew first, but for the Jew only. And they were happy with that. They didn't want to go to Gentiles, just the Jew only. There was plenty of them. And so he was content with that. But now God is upset in his apple cart. Now he sent him to the Gentiles. But he hadn't called to the Jews, but I'm going to send you to the Gentiles here first. I have a mission for you to do. And for to go into a Gentile house, no self-respecting Jew would do that. And maybe to be offered food at his table. What if he gives me a bacon body? Huh? What if he cooks me an oyster fry and there's three big slices of bacon on it? What am I going to do? <laughs> All this stuff has gone through his head. But he goes there under the command of the Lord. And he goes into there. And he begins to preach the gospel to them. And as he's preaching the gospel to them, suddenly the Holy Ghost comes. <laughs> he says, and fell on them as on us at the beginning, because they heard him speak in tongue and prophesy. <laughs> it was a Holy Ghost meeting. And what a turnaround. What a shake-up for this man. His whole culture, his whole background, his whole mindset, his whole way of thinking suddenly was turned upside down. And now he's going to have to go back to Jerusalem and explain it to the hierarchy. How would they take it? What would they think about it? Well, he had taken some people with him as evidence. And of course, when they did hear the story, they realized that God was at work here. God was doing something marvelous. But you know, he nearly missed that. God had to give him that vision three times. He had to cut through all of that tradition, all of that culture, all of that mindset. Had to cut through all of that to get to his heart. So God's still working on him. Here's my last scripture. Galatians chapter 2. Now listen to this. Verse 11, Galatians 2. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, this is, this is Paul writing this. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. I mean, Paul was, there was no compromise in Paul whatsoever. I mean, he called a spade a spade. It didn't matter where Peter, he was a big cheese. and It didn't matter about that. He, he felt he was doing wrong. He was going to challenge it. Peter come to Antioch. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men, men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, or the Jews. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. Knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, here's what happened. Paul and Silas had been branching out. So the church mainly was located at Jerusalem. But God began to use Paul and send them out on missionary trips to reach out. And this Antioch was Antioch in Syria. <clears throat> and God was doing a great work in Antioch in Syria. Lots of people coming to Christ. Tremendous things were happening. Church was exploding. Gentiles coming to Christ. Wonderful stuff. And then some Jewish believers began to mix in with them and said to them, well, this is wonderful, but to be a proper Christian, you're going to have to obey the law of Moses, you're going to have to get circumcised, certain foods you'll not be allowed to eat, or certain rituals you'll have to do, which was a load of nonsense. And so that was upsetting things, stopping the flow of God. And Paul was angry about it and went with the delegation back to headquarters in Jerusalem and said, what's all this about? Who are these people coming in whenever we know that it's faith in Christ is what we should be believing? Not the law, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And James, the Lord's brother, he was one of the chief ones in the council in Jerusalem. So there was a meeting held, and the upshot of the meeting was that they agreed with Paul. And James says, I'm going to write a letter back to the church in Antioch. You can take the letter back saying that we absolve you from all of these rites and rituals and circumcision and Sabbath keeping and all of that that was under the Jewish law. Uh, you're free now. You're under grace. Carry on. Except, except, just one or two little caveats. Don't want you to eat blood. Don't want you to eat meat. It's been animals that's been strangled with the blood still in them. I don't want you to Worship idols and commit no fornication. Just those four things. And that's all. And so they were all happy with that. They said, that's good. And so they went back. The church was going. Church was growing. Things was great. And then Peter decided he would go to Antioch and see this great church. And so he goes there. And it's wonderful. He's enjoying it. It's great. These Gentile Christians, he had some experience with Cornelius, so he's happy now to see these Gentile Christians. And of course, they were happy to see him because, I mean, he's Peter. He, he had actually walked with the Lord in the flesh for over three years. I mean, the stories he could tell them, the things he saw. What was Jesus like? What size was he? What, how tall was he? What was his voice like? No, you're with him, Peter, every day. Tell me about the miracles. Remember the little woman that came up and touched his car? Tell us about that. Remember the ones he raised from the dead? Tell us about that. And of course, he was a kind of big celebrity now, wasn't he? And he loved it. He was enjoying it. And he was eating with the, the Gentiles. He was in their homes. He had no more problem with that stuff. He was there enjoying himself. And it was wonderful until James, the Lord's brother, sent a delegation from headquarters now to come and view things. And suddenly, Peter gets scared. 
Suddenly, he's thinking, oh, headquarters, they're coming. And I know some of those boys. <laughs> some of them are legalists down there, you know what I mean? There's not much freedom in that church. And when these boys come in, we're in trouble. And you know what he did? He withdrew from the Gentiles. He withdrew from the Gentiles. He wouldn't eat in their houses. And Barnabas got caught up in it too. And so they suddenly they withdraw from the Gentiles. And the Gentile Christians said, well, what's going on? Why are you doing this to us? You're all right a while ago till these people come. Now you're withdrawn. And in fact, we've got it in paper that we're okay. And boy, whenever Paul heard that, he was raging. He was livid. And that's what you're reading there in Galatians 2. He says, I withstood him to his face and said, this is not on. You're, you're trying to get, get back onto the law again. You're a card. You're frightened the headquarters. Stand for Christ. Stand for what's true. Stand for faith. Stand for grace. And to Peter's credit, he did. He did. And you know, Peter, years later, writing his epistles, you know, he was, he was big enough to be able to take that and move on and learn the lesson. Because later on, writing these epistles, he talks about our beloved brother Paul. Our beloved brother Paul. So God has worked on him and worked on him and worked on him. And by the time you read, and we're not going to obviously, the time you read his two epistles, First and Second Peter, and I would encourage you to read them. There's only eight chapters in the two epistles. So easy read. If you read those two or three times and get the feel of this man now, see his wisdom. See his graciousness. See this man's heart. See his love. See his strength. See that at last God has finally, finally worked in this man. The leopard has changed its spots. And what a mighty man he was. And in the end, as the Lord had told him he would, that he would die for him. In the end, tradition says that he was crucified and he asked to be crucified upside down in honor of the Christ that he served. Why am I saying this? Hope for us all. If God could take a man like Peter with all his faults and feelings and foibles and mistakes and weaknesses and all of that and at the end of it make him a mighty man of God that after 2,000 years we can still read what he wrote and what a read it is. And there's hope for every single one of us that God is working on each of our lives and he can change us. And that's why we probably need to have a bit more patience with each other, isn't it? Because God hasn't finished with us yet. Sure he hasn't. He's still rubbing off some of those hard edges. The bits, you know, that we bump into each other, get on each other's goat at times. Don't you get on somebody's goat at times and somebody gets on your goat at times. But God's still working on us. Trying to work off those rough edges and make us into the person he wants us to be. Let's pray.